Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I think one of the unintended consequences of the assault on climate science that began two decades ago was that it has led to this sort of new generation of battle-ready, outspoken scientists. Hey, Adapters, welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. Yes, that was the legendary climatologist, Dr. Michael Mann. He's back on America Adapts. Mike just won the Tyler Prize, along with Dr. Warren Washington. The Tyler Prize is the Nobel Prize equivalent in environmental achievement. It's a well-deserved honor. He's been a hero to so many of us for a long time. He's been fearless in the face of constant harassment from climate deniers. He's a modern-day climate Jedi. Mike and I discuss President Trump and his climate policies, how adaptation is becoming a bigger issue in the climate realm. We also talk about how a new generation of climate scientists are fighting it back against climate trolls, something Dr. Mann has endured for decades. Finally, we ended on an inspirational note, discussing the global youth climate movement. This is a great episode, folks. Always an honor to have Mike on. Okay, so I just want to acknowledge my previous episode, I hosted eight other climate podcasters. It has had a fantastic reception. It was an honor to have all those folks on learning what they do and sharing their work with my listeners. It was nice to connect with so many of them. Definitely check out that episode. Okay, some upcoming episodes. Next up is Dr. Kyle White from Michigan State. And we're going to be taking a deep dive into indigenous adaptation work and proper ways to engage tribal communities. Kyle is a tribal member himself, and it's a deep, rich, and sometimes raw conversation about tribal issues. I also have an upcoming episode on climate science fiction, where a professor at Yale does some research on how cli-fi is influencing people's behavior. Fascinating stuff. Also, Dr. Marcy Rockman, former adaptation coordinator for the National Park Service, is coming on to talk cultural resource adaptation. Okay, some upcoming travel. I'm headed to the National Adaptation Forum in Madison, Wisconsin. I am very excited to go to this one. It happens every two years. And I am going to meet some of you. It is a rare opportunity to meet my listeners in person, and there will be many of them there. I'm so excited. If you are planning to go, please reach out. You know, reach out in advance. Email me and let me know so I can be on the lookout for your name. Some of you have already reached out to let me know that you'll be there, and I want to meet you in person. I want to hear about what you do, and we can talk about adaptation. And it's a whole conference of adapters. It's a perfect chance to chat. Okay, I'm also going to St. Augustine in May for the Keeping History Above Water Conference. It's about sea level rise and historic preservation. I'm being sponsored by the University of Florida to record a podcast and lead a podcasting workshop. That should be fun for those who want to learn how to launch your own podcast. I'll be leading them through that effort. Okay, I'll let you know how that goes. All right, just a reminder, America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving. It's a tax-deductible donation. You can find links on these show notes. It's a We Did It donate page. Make it very simple. Donate monthly. You can donate weekly. You can donate once. Please consider giving. That's how we keep up all these great conversations. Also, if you're interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. You've heard me collaborate with World Wildlife Fund, Harvard, UCLA, and University of Florida. There are so many stories to tell on this emerging issue of adaptation, so let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please email me. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they are so much fun. I love talking to people. I have a lot of experience 
presenting and the podcast and all my guests make for some great stories. And I share my own experiences in adaptation. I've been there for a long time and I just share my insights of what's happening. And I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate and inspire you. You can contact me via the website, americadapts.org. Okay, adapters, roll up your sleeves and let's join in with Dr. Michael Mann. Hey, welcome back, Adapters. On today's very special episode, I am excited to be hosting famed climatologist Dr. Michael Mann. Dr. Mann is the Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science and the Director of the Earth's System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University and the scientist behind the famed hockey stick research. Hi, Mike. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Great to be with you. Okay, so just first off, a big congratulations on just winning the 2019 Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. Were you sort of expecting this? I mean, this is sort of the Nobel Prize equivalent in the environmental realm. Did you have any sort of sense? I was deeply honored to receive the, the prize and to share it with a real hero of mine, uh, Warren Washington, who is a climate scientist from the National Center for Atmospheric Research, uh, one of the first scientists actually to develop the sorts of theoretical models we now use to do experiments to project future changes in climate. So it was really an honor to, it was also, by the way, I believe the second African-American recipient of a PhD in meteorology or atmospheric science in the country. So a great scientist, a great person, an inspiration. And so it, it was especially meaningful to, to be able to share the award with him this year. Uh, I'm just thankful to the committee for, uh, you know, recognizing my efforts, not just to try to advance the science of climate change, but to try to communicate it to the public and policymakers. And, and I was gratified, you know, that they recognized both of those efforts. Well, very well deserved. And just as a side note on Dr. Washington, I won't be speaking to him, but I'll have some links to his story. It really is amazing. He was doing some modeling work back in the 60s where they were using clunky computers. And yeah, just some groundbreaking work. Yeah, he was running climate models when I was still crawling on the ground. <laughs> learning how to walk so yeah that is amazing okay there's a tyler prize reception i think it's in, in may and each of the winners is going to give a speech and sometimes actually some news can be made during those speeches have you started working on yours yet uh no it's on my long list of uh, overdue tasks but uh, i'm looking forward to uh to again sort of sharing the stage with warren and, and hopefully providing some insights into you know uh, why it is that we do what we do, and why it is that this is not just a, an important scientific matter, which it is to both of us. I think both Warren Washington and I were drawn to this field because of the fascinating physics, the you know the, the science that there is to do. But ultimately, both of us have um, come to appreciate the opportunity to also play a role in informing. Uh, society about the implications of our science. And so I, I imagine that our comments will be along those lines, uh, probably talking uh, about our uh, respective experiences, which are very different, our life history, you know, our, our career paths um, and life histories are very different, but we've sort of arrived uh, at the same place. And so I guess, you know, hopefully we'll be able to provide some insights. Okay, so you probably don't remember this, but when we last chatted, it's it's been a couple of years now, Trump, President Trump, we're now saying President Trump, uh, just got elected. And part of our conversation, we were sort of speculating on how bad he could be on climate change. And I think there were some slivers of hope, maybe he won't be nearly as bad as we think. So were we wrong? Yeah, you know, I've, I've uh, tried to put um, that period of time out of my memory. So, uh, it's hard to really recall 
No, you know, it, it, it's a bit ironic because that fall before the election, before Trump was elected, uh, I co-authored a book with uh, Washington Post cartoonist Tom Tolles about climate change denial. Uh, the, the madhouse effect of climate change denial is threatening our planet, ruining our, our politics and driving us crazy. And at the time, I remember colleagues sort of criticizing us. So, you know, why are you write, writing this book about climate change denial when we're past all of that? You know, we're, we're you know, that, the, the age of denialism is over. Uh, the next you know, four years are going to be all about solutions and moving forward and action. And of course, history had something else in mind. Um, and we do now find ourselves very much um, back in the madhouse. Just today, uh, Donald Trump uh, was tweeting the words of an industry funded climate change denier, uh, which, you know, essentially embraced the notion that climate change isn't happening. It's not having any impacts, um, well, you know, tell that to the people of Puerto Rico or, or California or, you know, North Carolina, Houston or around the world. Uh, literally, you know, as we speak, um, Australia is uh, is still sort of dealing with the, the devastation of uh, record extreme weather down there, floods and, and unprecedented heat waves. Um, you know, tell that to the people who don't have the luxury of debating whether or not climate change is real or a problem because they're dealing with the damaging impacts already. So, you know, it's absurd that even today, literally today, the president continues to tout climate change denialism, even as the people that he's supposed to represent are, are dealing with the devastating impacts of the climate changes that we've already allowed to happen. It, it really is just an odd presidency. You, you think of, you know, I guess, especially on the environmental side, it's been the area I've been in. And sometimes it's like you always think of the worst case scenario. And most of the time, it's never quite as bad as like people make it out to be. But quite frankly, it's been worse than sort of like our, I think what you said in the previous podcast is that the, one of the most extreme things that he could do would be pull out of the Paris Agreement. And neither of us thought he'd really do it. And he did it. Yeah, or sort of has threatened to do so, and if he wins a second term, he would be in a position to make good on that threat. Um, hopefully, he won't get that opportunity. But even even the, the the threat of withdrawing from Paris has already taken a toll because it provides an excuse uh, to other countries that really were you know, mounting a considerable effort to to meet their obligations under. Uh, the Paris Agreement. Uh, China was decommissioning coal-fired coal power plants. They were actually exceeding the commitments that they had made uh, at Paris. But now that the other of the world's two largest emitters, um, the U.S. under Donald Trump, has now threatened to not meet its obligations under Paris, that has provided China an excuse for, for not doing their own due diligence. And we've seen just in the past two years global carbon emission numbers after having flatlined and they looked like they were ready to, to make that downward curve that we need to see. Well, instead, they crept up again over the last two years. And that's in part because China has eased off on their own efforts to limit their carbon emissions, because with the other of the world's largest two emitters, the United States, indicating that it is no longer making a good faith effort to meet its obligations, that, that gives other countries like China 
an excuse not to meet theirs. And, and we're seeing the impact now in terms of numbers that are now ticking up again. And, and you can attribute that directly to Donald Trump and the fossil fuel interests that he essentially is serving as a surrogate for. I wonder in this age of Trump and just your own personal situation, you've been subject to a lot of harassments, climate trolls and all that. But I'm just curious, has the reverse kind of happened? Have, are, are you still harassed at the same level or is it sort of lessened? Did his election kind of reduce some of that pressure? What, what's going on with you? Oh, you know, I, I think many of my critics have sort of moved on to more fertile pastures. Um, you know, what they try to do is they try to take you down when you're a young, vulnerable scientist. And I wrote about this in my book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. I even coined the term the Serengeti strategy based on experiences that I had at the Serengeti and watching, you know, the way that lions uh, will attack uh, vulnerable members uh, at the edge of a herd. Um, and I sort of likened that to the way that uh, the fossil fuel industry and the you know, those who advocate for them and, and those who serve as attack dogs on their behalf, um, they do the same thing. They look for vulnerable young scientists that they can make uh, an example out of. And that's what they tried to do to me literally two decades ago. I withstood that assault. I stood firm. Uh, I stood up for my science. And in fact, it caused me to become far more outspoken because I recognized the importance of not ceding the you know, the ground to the climate change denialists and making sure that, um, you know, that the public discourse is informed by the voice of science. And I've become a very passionate uh, science communicator uh, as a result of that. And so, you know, they now have turned their turned their attention to other scientists, younger scientists that they can try to intimidate and to and, and, and to essentially intimidate um, and to cow them into sort of withdrawing from the sort of larger public sphere. I see part of my role today as being, uh, you know, as defending and uh, and helping some of these younger scientists who find themselves now in the same sort of situation that I was literally two decades ago. Well, I think on, on that note, what you're seeing, you know, on Twitter, on other social media, there are climate scientists that are really stepping up and you're seeing a lot more of them. And they're quite frankly, they're they seem quite confident to kind of respond to these things. And so I'm encouraged by that. Absolutely. I think ironically, and I've expressed this this opinion before, I think one of the unintended consequences of the assault on climate science that began two decades ago was that it has led to this sort of new generation of battle-ready, outspoken scientists who are attracted to this field, not just because there is interesting science to do, but because there's a role to serve as a facilitator in the public discourse, a communicator of that science. And I am really encouraged also by this younger generation of engaged uh, scientists who who, who see their role, you know, again, not as being not just to do the science, but, you know, as my good friend Susan uh, Joy Hassel likes to say, you know, science isn't done in, until it's communicated. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, a guiding principle for many of the scientists in our field today. Okay, maybe you can clear this up for my, my listeners. And over the last two years, we've heard all sorts of assaults on science funding or this new, this particular climate research won't be funded, you know, NOAA and some of the big federal agencies. Now, none of that is good. And I think just in the last couple of days, we've seen the president's budget were huge cuts to science funding. But 
how does that work? You're at a public university and you do your research and I'm sure you probably get some federal money, but are there particular things that we really should, well, we should be concerned about this all, but it just, when you read these things, you're like, oh, they're no longer going to do this research. And I, I like to think that there are some redundancies in the system. What's really kind of going on with some of the key climate research? Yeah, well, you know, the good news is that, believe it or not, Congress uh, held firm um, in the last round when the president, you know, in the last uh, budget negotiations, when the president once again wanted, uh, and, and threatened to, uh, in his budget contained very large cuts to the major science uh, organizations, uh, science, the Nas- National Science Foundation, NOAA, uh, and uh, the Department of uh, Energy, etc. There was... Uh, really concerted pushback from the entire scientific community. And today, even today, even with the loss of so much of the good faith that we once had in our political discourse, we did see uh, congressional Republicans actually rise to the occasion. Um, There are enough relationships that have been cultivated between the science community and politicians on both sides of the aisle uh, that um, in the end, uh, uh, Congress didn't support those substantial cuts, and we saw actually a small increase, not necessarily enough to keep up with in- inflation, but we did see a small increase in the budgets for the major uh, science institutions. So that's that's the good news. The bad news is that the assault on science uh, continues unabated uh, from Trump and those in his administration, and it isn't enough for them try to defund the science. They're also doing everything they can to attack the science, to attack scientists. Trump, you know, infamously having uh, just recently appointed a climate change denier to be the U.S. uh, ambassador um, to the United Nations and uh, is uh, establishing a council who run by a climate change denier, fossil fuel industry funded climate change denier named Will Happer the mission of which is to try to uh, undermine the current scientific consensus in the world of policy when it comes to climate science. For example, the most recent uh, report of the uh, uh, National Assessment, which is a, a, a scientific assessment process that is actually, you know, that is literally the, you know, uh, reflects the position of the executive branch itself. And the, the, all of the science organizations contribute to this report that is congressionally mandated to you know, come out every four years, it has the authority and the imprimatur of the administration itself. And so Trump's own administration published this report last fall. They tried to bury it, as you may recall, on uh, Black Monday uh, when they thought it wouldn't get attention. And the effort to try to bury the report ironically, garnered huge amounts of uh, media attention and got far more coverage for the National Assessment Report, which laid out in stark terms the the reality and threat of climate change than it otherwise would have gotten. And so the latest thing is is Trump is now trying to organize a committee that will undermine that previous report and indeed the current scientific consensus, at least within the framework of our executive branch. Uh, with the climate change. So the assaults haven't stopped. Uh, they continue unabated. And, you know, it, the only way we will see that change is, of course, if people show up at the voting booth and vote for politicians who will represent us and our concerns and our interests rather than 
the sorts of fossil fuel interests who currently run the Trump administration. So, Mike, maybe you could clear this up. And, you know, I, I got a master's and so I had a little bit more exposure of dealing with, you know, professors and academics. And this council that the president has put together, and I think they're, it's like national security and they're reassessing the climate information. And I, you know, I think they're recruiting people like John Christie and people actually with some PhDs that have done a little bit of work, but they're kind of the usual suspects in the climate denial area. And I know this is a very this is a minefield issue, but how do these people still maintain, I guess, their space at these universities? Because the universities are producing good material, but I know tenure is an incredibly strong thing. But th- I mean, they're they're being hired to basically undermine the most important scientific issue of our age. Don't those universities aren't they embarrassed by these people? I mean, how does that work? Well, you know, it's sort of funny, right? Because there is this attack on academia from the right an attack on academic freedom, which is seen as a threat to many conservatives um, because it provides job security to academics who are outspoken. Um, They don't have to worry about being fired because of their opinions or controversial views. And that's always been regarded as uh, something that's absolutely critical. Um, Academic freedom is sort of the the cornerstone of uh, our, you know, the academic uh, endeavor. It's what allows academics to, to speak openly and freely and to and to take sometimes controversial uh, views. And so it's always ironic to me that this very principle that is under attack by conservatives and our universities and their independence have been under assault uh, under this administration in particular. And yet those same sort of uh, protocols or, or principles are indeed exploited <laughs> by the right, in this case by climate change deniers, because part of the reason that you can have fringe individuals who, you know, not only are, are not doing good science, but arguably have not been honest and forthright, you know, and uh, where there are often legitimate questions that could be raised about intellectual integrity. And yet, most people are afraid to do that because of the principle of academic freedom. It would look potentially like an infringement on academic freedom. So, you know, the irony is that this bedrock principle of academic freedom that is under assault by the right is actually what gives them cover when it comes to the continued uh, support, institutional support and uh, and and influence that fringe <laughs> members of the scientific community, climate change deniers, uh, continue to, to, to have. And in many cases, these individuals are taking funding um, either directly or indirectly um, from fossil fuel interests to act as, uh, you know, as advocates for them, which arguably is a violation of the sort of the academic principles um, uh, you're not supposed, you know, against uh, conflicts of interest and undisclosed conflicts of interest in particular. It, it's deeply ironic, but there you have it. And that's why we continue to have uh, fringe figures who are secure and often launder the imprimatur of their institution, be it Harvard or, or some uh, or some of the other institutions whose name is sometimes dragged through the mud by fringe climate change deniers that uh, continue to keep an affiliation with uh, some of our most respected and celebrated institutions. You got to wonder what happened to the scientists that they just they lost interest in having the respect of their peers. You know, it's like that no longer matters to them because 
Yeah, I guess that happens. I have a couple more questions, Mike, and we didn't talk about this last time, and I certainly want to talk about it, is that my podcast mainly focuses on how society is going to adapt to climate change. And I'm curious, has that been coming up? I, you have your particular research, but in as you're speaking to issues, I mean, there's just been a huge sea change in talking about adaptation, even in the last two, three, four years. How has that kind of come up for you? Yeah, well, you know, we have to adapt to those changes that are are already upon us or that are baked in that that we we will continue to see simply from the carbon that we've already burned and the the warming influence that that continues to have um, decades into the future. There is a certain amount of additional climate change that we will have to adapt to no matter how strong our efforts are on the mitigation side. And uh, my good friend John Holdren, who is the uh, previous uh, presidential science advisor uh, under the uh, Obama administration, is, I think, summarized the challenge very eloquently. You know, our response to climate change is going to be a combination of three things. Mitigation, preventing as much climate change as we can. Adaptation, adapting, building resiliency um, in response to those changes that have happened or are inevitable. And then the final category, suffering. Um, and it's up to us to choose how much of each is acceptable, is tolerable. And, and I hope that we will absolutely minimize any additional climate change and any additional suffering by putting as much effort into mitigation as we possibly can while investing in adaptation, uh, adaptive strategies and uh, infrastructure, especially for those you know, the, the, the least well off among us, because one of the truly unethical things about climate change is the differential impact that it has. The, the worst impacts are felt by the lowest strata of, of society internationally and, and, and within individual countries like the U.S. Those who have the least affluence are least able to cope with uh, the changes that are happening and are likely to change and often um, uh, live in the most unhealthy uh, neighborhoods you know, near refineries and power plants. So there's a real ethical uh, dilemma here as well, which is that those who arguably had the least to do with creating the problem, you know, generated the least carbon emissions, are the ones who are bearing the brunt of the impacts of climate change. And, and, and we do need to provide them with assistance with resources to help them cope with the changes that are inevitable. And so, you know, what does that mean? It, it means a more robust infrastructure. It means, obviously, uh, building some resiliency with respect to coastal inundation and sea level rise and uh, more uh, resilient structures that uh, can better um, hold up in the face of uh, increasingly extreme weather events. There is a need to invest quite a bit and adaptive infrastructure, while at the same time investing as much as we can in changing our energy infrastructure and shifting away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. And the good news there is that that's an investment that returns on itself tenfold. For, for every dollar we spend preventing additional climate change, that's going to come back tenfold in terms of the damages it prevents. And, you know, at the same time, uh, it creates the opportunity for, for new jobs. The clean energy uh, industry provides a far greater potential for new jobs than just continuing with the fossil fuel status quo. 
So, you know, there's some good news here as well, which is that there's an opportunity to act on this problem and, you know, increase economic opportunity across all sectors of society. But we need politicians who are willing to do what's right rather than what's most profitable to them and their funders. And, and that's where we all play a role. We have to get out and vote in every election, not just the presidential elections. And, me, and in the meantime, we have to exert as much pressure as we can on our policymakers by talking about the problem, talking about this with friends and family and classmates and job, you know, work colleagues and, and, and speaking out and, and, and writing about this and putting pressure on our local politicians as well as our national politicians. We need to use every lever arm there is available to, to push forward um, for dramatic and, and rapid change. And everybody plays a role in doing that. There isn't a single person who can't play an important role in doing that. Awesome. So to final note, I have one last question for you, and I ask this of all my guests, is that if you could recommend one guest to come on America Adapt, who would it be? Wow, that's a great question. Well, if you could get Donald Trump, that would be very interesting. <laughs> I'll, I'll take him, yeah. Hot seat uh, and, and question him about all of the you know, silly and foolish things he's said about climate change. I would love to see him actually have to answer for um, all of these absurd uh, allegations and claims um, that he's made. But um, it probably wouldn't be very uh, intellectually stimulating for your audience. You know, I um, it's, it's it's such a good question. I can just tell you there are a lot of people I'd love to hear from. I would love you uh, for you to talk to AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because she's sort of really at the, the helm, uh, with, you know, of this new, uh, you know, Green New Deal, and which is really about climate change and clean energy and all the things that we're talking about that we need to do. Um, John Holdren. <laughs> Our former presidential science advisor who has so much wisdom that he is, that he's gained through his own experiences um, and always has interesting uh, insights to share. He would be a wonderful guest. And, and the list, list goes on. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, you know, John Holdren, like me, is sort of at the older white male end of the spectrum. But, you know, the voice of young folks like uh, Greta Thunberg from the Swe uh, Sweden, <laughs> I believe it is, and Alexandria uh, Villa, I forget how to spell her, uh, say her last name, uh, Alexandria V, I'll call her, um, who is sort of spearheading this effort in the States. So, you know, these, these school kids who are striking uh, to raise awareness uh, about climate change and to demand action on the part of the adults of the world, they're not in a position to to affect policy directly, and yet the policies we make, you know, that uh, policies we put in place today, have are going to have a profound impact on their lives and the lives of their children and grandchildren, and so they have, uh, I would say, even more of a right <laughs> to be participating and and to be leading this discussion than we adults do, and um, it would be great for you to have uh, one of one of those folks, uh, Greta or Alexandria, on to talk about. You know, the problem as they see it from their perspective, uh, as the generation that's going to bear the brunt of the decisions that the adults are making right now. 
great selections. And just for your own, I was invited to be the keynote at a recent Model UN conference, 600 high school students here in Arizona, where they head at University of Arizona. And they invited a climate person to come talk to them. And for the next two days, a lot of their sort of committee meetings that they do were going to be around sort of talking about climate change. So I was just truly inspired. And this is like that next generation of younger people that, you know what, you guys can do what you're doing with Paris Agreement. But in the long term, we're going to deal with this issue. So I was very encouraged by that whole scene. Yeah, no, me, me too. I think that that's a real game changer. And when people ask me, you know, what, what is it that gives me hope and, and, and keeps, keeps me optimistic? It's the young folks. No question about it. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming on. It is always such an honor. And again, congratulations on the Tyler Prize. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure and happy to come back again sometime soon. I will have you on anytime. Yep. Bye. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Michael Mann for coming back to the podcast. It's always a treat to have him on. And congrats again, Mike, for your well-deserved Tyler Award. I encourage my listeners to check out the show notes to learn more details of why Mike won and also some information about his co-award winner, Dr. Warren Washington, one of the first African-American scientists working on climate models. As you heard from Mike, the hour is late. But he is still very optimistic we can deal with this climate challenge. I hope he inspired you to take it up a notch. All right, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page in the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, which I hear all the time, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week, hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool things. I mean, it leads to episodes, it leads to collaborations. I'm also doing this Letters from Adapter series, so please consider sending me your own note that I could share on air. I could read your story, please. And I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Okay, check out the website, americadaps.org. Again, all this information is in my show notes. As I remind you every time, so is that contribution page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.